Good morning, everybody. Did you hear me? So great singing. Great singing. Yeah. Let's pray. Father, thank you that... Um, well, just thank you that you put these songs in our hearts and we want to sing them to you. Thank you that you fill us with joy in the singing and um, just thank you, Lord, that... Um, you're the one who set this love in our heart for you, and you're the one who who stokes it up, and you're the one who pours it out in us, and and we are the beneficiaries of our joy and our love for you. So, um, thank you, thank you, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you that we have this place to sit in. Thank you that we can open up your word. Thank you that we're going to hear you speak. Thank you that you will speak loudly and you will speak directly into our hearts. Thank you, Father, that we don't need to be concerned about that. You have promised that your word never returns empty, that you will accomplish the thing that you sent it for. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that your word is available to us, that we can hear you speak, that that we can pick it up any time of the day or night and we can know that you are speaking to us. What an amazing thing, Lord, that the God who created all things would speak to people like us. How wonderful that is. Help us to really receive that, Lord, today, to understand the reality of what it is to be born free. Help us to understand the greatness of you. and. Um, and just, Lord, I ask you to remove from our minds now anything that we uh, came in with, any distractions, any difficulties, any, um, anything that might get in the way, Lord, and take our minds off what you're saying to us. And I pray that knowing that you will do it, Lord, for you want us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a terrible feeling that my earring is banging the thing, is it? No? Is there any inter interference? It's a terrible feeling because I hate taking my earrings off. You know, it's just like death. Take my jewellery off. So, <laughs> um, Okay, if you wouldn't mind going to John chapter 3, we're going to start there today. Um, John chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Um, I'll just read those. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from, and where it is going, so is and so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and do not understand these things? Nicodemus was a um, significant man. He had power, civil power. Um, in Israel, and, and that power was backed by Rome. Um, so 
he was a recognized interpreter of the word of God. Um, people listened to him when he spoke. And his first words here, um, you, with his first words, you know that there is this growing conviction that Jesus is a, um, a, a rabbi, a teacher, someone who has come from God or endowed with some sort of power from God. Uh, because he says, no one can do the miraculous signs you're doing unless God is with him. And, um, but Jesus is, you know, really jolts him with an announcement that even to catch a glimpse of God's kingdom you must be born again, and Nicodemus struggles with that. We all know this. Um, this is a very familiar passage, and, um, and you know that Nicodemus's answer is, well, how can a man enter his mother's womb again after he's been born? And um, even Jesus' explanation that it was going to be a spiritual birth, even that uh, caused him to say, how can this be? And Jesus' final sentence to him um, was, you're supposed to be Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things. And so right away, right at the beginning, you know that, we know that um, he should have understood. And that's what I think about us, actually, as Christians. That's what I think what happens in, in the church in our day um, we should understand some basic fundamental facts about our salvation. We should know what is true about us. And we should be taught those things from the beginning uh, when you, we first come to the Lord Jesus. But what happens is there is so many other things that get mixed up with the basic fundamentals that we start to get confused. And that's where Nicodemus was. He was confused. He thought he knew exactly what the Bible taught. He thought he knew what God was teaching. And because he thought he knew, he had closed his mind to anything else. And what Jesus says to him is, you're supposed to be a teacher and you don't understand these things. So Jesus is actually saying, this being born again by the Spirit is all over the Old Testament. This is not a new thing that I've brought. This is something that God has been saying since the beginning, and you should know this. And... Um, and, and so I, you st when you start to read this, you think, well, what did he actually mean? Because when you read Genesis and Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you don't automatically pick up you're going to be born again. You don't see that phrase in there. But Jesus is pointing him back to all the promises of God, all the prophecies that said there's going to be something new happening. I'm going to do a new thing. And it's going to be marvelous and astonishing. Jeremiah 31, because if you can quickly go to Jeremiah 31, um, Jeremiah 31, you'll know the verse again, this is a, a very common, a very well-known verse, Jeremiah 31, verse 31, um, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So this 
um, this understanding that God was going to do something within the heart of his people was taught in the Old Testament, prophesied in the Old Testament. Ezekiel will say the same thing. I will put my spirit within you, Ezekiel tells them. God will put his spirit within them and they will be his people. He will wash them by that spirit and revive them and they will be born again. The phrase born again is not in the Old Testament, but the idea and the understanding of it is in the Old Testament. And... um, And the understanding that when God does that, something cataclysmic happens. Something totally other happens. Not something that is just a renewal or a kind of shining up of an old thing, but a completely new thing happens. A completely new thing happens. Um, And when that new thing happens, something amazing happens inside each one of us. Now, I I don't know everybody in the room, actually. I know most people in the room, but I don't know everybody in the room. But I would say that it's probably quite difficult for each one of us to truly understand and hold on to the fact that that new thing has happened all the time because we live in an old thing. The new thing that's happened has happened inside an old thing, inside the body that we're used to looking at. And so consequently, we are being asked to lay hold of a truth that we cannot see all the time, and actually that we're not feeling all the time. We are being asked by God to believe that he has done something before we often have the proof of it in our everyday life. That's what faith is, isn't it? It's believing that God has done something before we actually experience the reality of it. Now, sometimes we have that new born-again experience, and it's an amazing thing, and and we might walk up in a church and and give our life to the Lord, and, and then for a few days after, we might be buzzing, or a few months after even, we might be buzzing, but then life hits back in, and temptation comes back in and all the difficulties fly back in and now then is the time where we have to say do I really believe that I am a totally new creature even though everything on the outside of me looks the same and that's what Jesus is talking about here he's talking about a new birth Something totally new that's happening, but Nicodemus couldn't understand it. And he couldn't understand it because his concept of God was faulty. He was trying to understand something about God through the lens of what he thought God was. And that's what we do all the time. We try to understand what God is, who he is, what he's doing through what we already know about God. But unfortunately, what we already know about God is so often faulty. So, because of that, Jesus goes on with Nicodemus to explain some real basic principles. And these will be really basic for you too. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, these should be basic to you. So um, let's just go through from verse 16 to verse 21. Uh, Jesus will say in John chapter 3, back to John 3, he's going to go on with Nicodemus. Um, 
and he's going to say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So the basic principles that John lays out in his gospel here, the first one, what is the first one that he says in uh, verse 16? What is the first basic premise? And, and, and really what, I, what we want to th- see here is that, that, that this is being spoken to someone and about someone or directly after this conversation about the law has been, that, you know, how can this happen? How can this be? How can it, how can it be changed? I have this view of God and it's like this, so how can I be born again? And Jesus is going to say here, and, and John writes down for us, some really basic promi- uh, premises about God. What's the first thing, verse 16? God so loved the world, for God so loved the world. The law and all the stuff that Nicodemus was hanging on to and thought he understood, all the old covenant that he had, uh, that was built into his life and, and meant so much, could, convinced him that God was dispassionate, that God had justice in mind, that he was going to pay back exactly as you had done, that, that you had to amass lots of good things and um, hopefully they would outweigh the bad things. And that was his mindset about God. And so this statement, for God so loved the world, is the basic fundamental thing about God that, 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 um, uh, that we have to understand. God is not impersonal. He is a personal God. And he loves, and he so loves the world that he did what? That he gave his only begotten son. You know, that verse is so well known. But really, when you think about it, for God so loved every person in this room that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved you that he gave Christ for you. For God loves you with an overwhelming, passionate, all-consuming love. And you know it because he gave Jesus for you. A direct trade, Christ for you. For God so loves the world And John will say that many will not receive him. In John chapter 1, verse 12, he'll say, um, uh, he came to his own, but his own would not receive him. 
And here in chapter 3, he explains why not. Because men love the darkness. God loves you. And though you did not receive him for so long, he continued to love you. I don't know. I mean, I was 41 before I believed in the Lord Jesus. I had been loved for 40 years before I even thought about believing in the Lord Jesus. I had been loved through everything in my life up to that point. I had been loved before I was born. I had been loved by a passionate, consuming love that said, I am trading my son for Anne. She doesn't know it, but he's dying for her. That's what John is writing here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his only begotten son for those who would not receive him. He gave his only begotten son for people who would never receive him. He gave his only begotten son for people who would trample his name and shout abuse. For people who would, in 2018 or 19, wherever we are, that would ridicule his name, scorn his name, And God continues to love those people with a passionate, overwhelming love. He chose to give love to his enemies, not just his friends. And this life that God gives is called eternal Not because it goes on forever, but because he is eternal. And anything to do with him is eternal. We think of eternal as that way, because it's from now on through eternity. But eternal eternal is every which way. Eternal is every way. It's behind and beside and ahead and, and in every way eternal is forever, behind and before and beside. Whosoever receives him will have eternal life. Life. Why? Why will we have eternal life? Because God is eternal God and because he is life. He is life. He is life. And apart from that life, everyone is perishing. That's what he says in verse 18. He who who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been brought, uh, been wrought in God. 
Apart from God, there was no hope. Apart from God, there is no hope. Apart from God, there is no life. Apart from God, there is only death. Apart from God, there is only darkness. Apart from God, there is only deception. Apart from God, there is only evil. Apart from God, there is nothing good. Apart from God, you and I are dead forever. He is the only hope for mankind. He is the only hope for mankind. That truth is being attacked in our day like it has probably never been attacked before. Jesus is the only hope. Every other hope stands on him. Everything else, hope for justice, stands on the fact that Jesus Christ is God. Hope for a brave new world, hope for heaven, hope for any other thing stands on Christ. Without Christ, there is no hope. And the human response generally to Christ and to the light is that we turn from it. And you turned from it for a long time. You turned from the light. So what is appropriate then for, the, for this truth, for what Jesus has said, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What is the only appropriate response to that? You tell me. Yeah, yeah. But even before you tell anybody else, even when you give thanks, when you give thanks, what is the only appropriate response to, for God so loved the world? Say that again, Anne. Hmm? To love him, yeah. But before, before anything else, when the gospel is preached to you, when, when this, this is the gospel, for God so loved you that he gave his son for you, for you, in your place, that he died for you. Believe. 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 What does it mean to believe? And John, I've already said that in John chapter 1, verse 12, John says uh, he came to his own, but his own would not receive him. What does it mean to believe? It means to receive. It means to receive. It means to take what God has offered you. What has he offered you? He's offered you life. Life. He's offered you what you did not have. He's offered you life and love and light and joy and peace and all of that. And he's asking you to receive it. To receive it. To receive it. And then what? To receive it and then what? Hello, Diana. (laughs) Yes, even before that, Diana. So we receive from God all of this 
I mean, do you, first of all, to, be, to receive it means you totally trust that everything I've just said and everything you've read is actually true. And you're going to receive that for yourself. You're going to wrap it around yourself like a blanket and you're never taking it off. You are going to walk in that truth and live in that truth and hold on to that truth no matter what happens. And as that, ha- as that works itself out in you, what is the normal response of that? Yeah, before you tell anyone else. What? You are going to surrender to the truth of God. You are going to just give up every fight, every, every rebellion, every thought about who you are and, and how you've lived so far and you've done some good things and, and, and all of that stuff. You're going to give it all up and you're going to say, I want you. I want you. I want what you can give me. I want eternal life. I want Jesus. I want him. And I'm willing to give everything that I have to receive him. That's believing. That's receiving Christ. And when you do that, Jesus says, you are born again. You are born again. You are born again by the Spirit of God who comes to take up residence in you and who will never leave because he is the eternal life. He is eternal God. Jesus put a challenge to Nicodemus and for all his knowledge, he couldn't understand it. And for us... With all of our Bible knowledge and all of our church going and all of our books about holiness and all of our great and wonderful writers that have gone before us and and Christians who have written about it and talked about it, we also do not fully understand the reality of what has been done. This transaction where God died for you and you received that truth Nothing, nothing ever in the history of the universe could possibly come close to the magnificence of that. Nothing. There is nothing you could ever do that would ever add to that or subtract from that. This is a transaction that happened almost without your understanding. This is something that happened that God decided before he created the world. I am going to love the people that I create. I am going to love them with a passionate, all-consuming love. And I am going to give myself in the form of my son to buy them back out of the places they will go. I'm going to take them out of all the muck and the stuff of their lives and I am going to fill them with life eternal because I'm going to fill them with myself. And really, if you understand even a fraction of that, tell me, what could you now give to God? 
What could you do to make that better? Where would you begin to start to add in to the mix? That's what it means to be born again. It means that God did something in and through and towards you that is miraculous and amazing and that you would never add to. And we struggle so much with that because everything in us wants to do something to pay back. And even as we talk about telling other people and surrendering to Christ and living for his glory and doing the work that he created for us to do, something in our mind starts to think that there is something we have to do. I have to. I mean, really, if I truly understand that God loves me so much, surely I have to do this, and I should do this, and I ought to do this. And so we build up our own mosaic law. We build up our own set of rules and regulations, our own shoulds and oughts and have-tos, and then not content with having them for ourselves, we pass them on to everybody else. This is what it's like to be a Christian. This is the road you have to walk. This is what you have to wear. This is what you have to say. This is how you have to sing. This is where you have to go to church every Sunday. This is what you must do. You must do. If you have a must or a should or an ought to in your mind, in any place, then you need to repent of that should do and must and ought to. You need to stand before God and understand that all your shoulds and ought tos and all your musts and all your rules and all your regulations come out of your pride. Because believe you me, you will only give yourselves rules and regulations that you are able to keep. This concept of being born again, being redeemed, being given freedom is really hard for us. And it's probably hard because actually we don't know what freedom is until we come to Christ. We think we know, but we don't really know. And even when you come to Christ and you go to the Bible, it's quite difficult to see what freedom is because it's talked about in different ways in Scripture. In Romans, for example, Romans 6, Paul will tell us that you're, everybody's a slave. You're either a slave to wickedness or you're a slave to righteousness. And the word slave doesn't mean free in our language. In our language, if you're a slave, it means that you're in some way degraded. There's, there's bad connotation to being a slave. So sometimes it's quite difficult to understand the relationship that we now have with the God who has caused us to be born again, to be born free. And in the New Testament, it's quite difficult. There are 124 words that mean slave in the New Testament. But mostly they're translated as servant because it's hard in our language to hear the word slave and not feel 
chained up. So the whole understanding of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be born free, what it means to, to now be born again, is something I honestly think that we have to keep going over and over in our minds and keep understanding, trying to understand more and more because it gets very confusing otherwise. A slave of Christ is truly free. The the contradiction in there is immense. But Jesus will say in John chapter 8, if you are truly my disciples, then you will continue in my word and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. If you are truly my disciples, you will continue in my word and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And if the sun sets you free, he says, you will be free indeed. When you came to Christ Jesus, when you believed in Jesus, he redeemed you. He redeemed you. What does it mean to be redeemed? Brought back, brought back. From what to what? From death to life. See, see, sorry, Sue, say that again. Same, death to life. Okay, what else? Redeemed from where to where? From, yeah, well, yes, yes. From darkness to light. From Satan's kingdom to God's kingdom. From, from captivity to freedom. Any others? There's probably lots of others. I can't think of them at the moment. Yeah. So you've been redeemed, redeemed. And the thing is, that concept is really difficult for us because you didn't know you were a slave before you were redeemed. You thought you were free, didn't you? You thought you were free. And the reason you thought you were free was because you've been deceived from birth into thinking that what you had was freedom. And Christianity, if it is pushed and, and uh, given as a set of rules that we now have to keep, as a should and shouldn't and have to and must, is not attractive to someone who thinks they're free. Do you see what I mean? So, and, and what happens with us is even when we're born again and we get the beginning of the understanding that I'm born free, we still have all the old me fighting, saying, call that freedom? That doesn't look like freedom. That looks like a chain. What, now you can't drink and you can't smoke and you can't swear and, you, and you, you can't do this and you can't do that. Christianity, for most people, is a list of all the things they cannot do. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Mm. Yes. Yes. 
<laughs> yeah. Yes. 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 Because there's a fear attached to freedom. Because as soon as you say to people, there's no shoulds and shouldn'ts, there's no what you have to do and what you don't have to do, there's no must, there's no this, there's no that, you've passed through judgment into life, you are never going to be judged, then all the leaders in the church go, <gasps> no. Because they think that, you know, everyone's going to go wild. And they're never going to be able to control anything. And so that's what happens. Exactly, Diana. They, we have each church, each denomination has its own rules and regulations. And we, we just bring them in. And that looks like a box. It looks like a cage. And from the outside looking in, it looks like something I don't want. I don't want, you know, to be going into something that is going to tell me what I can and cannot do. Last time, if you were here, I said when Alex said, stand up to worship. You know, for me, when I first went to church, if someone at the front told me to stand up, I mean, everything in me screamed, I am not moving. I'm staying sitting down. Because that that's, was my human rebellion. And that, that's the, the way with all of it, all the rules and all the regulations. Everything in me, wrongly, was shouting back, I don't have to do that. Why do I have to do what you say? I don't have to do that. I'd been that way from a child on. And it probably took me 10, 15 years as a Christian to understand that that was A, rebellion, and not freedom, and not kind of maturity and intelligence and all of those good things, and to understand that actually, you know, that was part of my Christian life. didn't have to do it, but in doing it, I was receiving benefit and, and uh, various other things. But the, but the presentation of rules and regulations in any form causes this disconnect between what Christ tells me is true about myself and what everybody else is telling me is true about myself. That's what you're saying, Diana, that the church, in all its ways, for the best of intentions, often puts you back into a cage. And that's why it's important um, to understand about freedom, about being born free. Um, Jesus, in John chapter 8, he will say in verse 30, what I've just um, quoted part of, John chapter 8, verse 30, um, uh, as, he, as, he came to, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. This is Jesus. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Um, each, when Jesus was telling this to the Jews and them saying, well, we've never been enslaved, that was probably the most ridiculous thing that they could have said. They'd been enslaved for centuries and they were still now under Roman occupation. They were slaves, essentially. 
But the deception is that they, they weren't and that they were free. And so Jesus saying to them, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. This was kind of, uh, they couldn't understand it. But the most, uh, the most important thing for Jesus was to let them know that if the sun sets you free, if Jesus sets you free, that is real freedom. Now, just think for a little bit. What can you know that God wants for your life? Just from what Jesus said in these verses. If you continue in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What can you know about God from those? Yeah, he wants you to live free. He wants you first to be free. He wants you to know freedom. And what's his way of giving freedom? By knowing the truth, by knowing the truth. If you will know the truth, the truth will set you free. That word know means know by experience. He wants you to experience the truth, and that truth will will set you free. What is God's revelation of truth? Jesus. Jesus is his revelation of truth. Yes, the word, Diana, because Jesus is the word. So, um, So God wants you to be free. His way of giving you freedom is by your knowing truth, and the revelation of truth is Jesus Christ. And here, um, he tells us that if if he sets you free, you're free indeed. Um, Think about freedom in terms of um, ordinary life. What would you say freedom is? Just ordinary life. Be able to do what you want. Okay, that's a great one. I can do what I want. So if everybody could drive their car at whatever speed they wanted, on whichever side of the road they wanted, day or night, wherever, what would the roads be like? Chaos. Okay. Um, Think about, uh, let's think of, um, I had some examples here. Oh, yeah. If you were free to do whatever came into your head at any given moment, what would the world be like? Chaos chaos. So there is no country in the world where that happens. So there is no country in the world where people are free to do whatever they want whenever they want it. Actually, that's not freedom, is it? That's just chaos, and that's not freedom. So um, when you look back at the beginning of creation, when you look back at Genesis, what you see is God defining freedom, defining what it is to be free. Can you just go right back to Genesis Um, Genesis chapter 1, and somebody read out verse 26 to 28, please. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Thank you. I mean, wouldn't you love to have heard that? Isn't that the best thing? I mean, you're in charge. You're just going to rule everything. You're going to subdue everything. You're going to have dominion over everything and authority over everything. That's what I call freedom. Don't you? Yeah. Now, somebody read chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. 
Oh, no, you're going too fast. Sorry, Maureen, yeah. So, so 15 to 17, the Lord God commanded him, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. It's like someone saying, you know, you really have to stick to the speed limit. For in the day that you don't, you will surely die. You, there have to be boundaries to freedom, boundaries to, uh, to life. And that's what God sets up here. And what was the problem with that boundary? What was the problem with boundaries? Nobody wants boundaries. Why not? Because, because there's an enemy that was at work and he was saying... I thought this was supposed to be freedom. I thought you were supposed to be in charge. I thought you were supposed to rule and reign and have dominion and have authority over the whole world. Actually, these boundaries, this rule is not really freedom. This is how God is keeping you under his control. That's a paraphrase of Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 to 5. God knows that in the day that you eat, of the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. You will be like God. Uh, maybe I think that. Um, I think that's a, a, a rabbit trail. That's a good one, Diana, but I think it's a rabbit trail, so we'll just stay back here in this one if that's okay with you. No, no, that's okay. It's just that um, for the idea of freedom, what, what uh, Satan has done is he has introduced something that is totally untrue into a whole world of freedom. And what he has said is, God doesn't want you to be free. He doesn't want you to be like him, but actually they were already like him. They were already. Can you imagine what they must have been like? They must have been magnificent and powerful and intelligent and the potential in them must have been there for just who knows what. But they believed the lie because they believed that they should have complete and utter freedom. They did not want to belong to the one who made them. They did not want to have to do something that they didn't want to do or not do something that they did want to do. What happened when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Eyes were opened, knew that they were naked. What else? Hid from God. Yeah, they died. They died. They started to die physically and they died spiritually because they were now separated from God. And in that death, 
Everything that God wanted them not to know, they knew. In the darkness of that death, they knew fear and anxiety and shame and guilt. They knew meaningless and waste and futility. All of those things came to them because they believed the lie. Now, I want you to take that truth and move that into your life. If you believe the deception that you have to do certain things to be or to add to what God has already done, you are opening the door for futility and waste and fear and depression and anxiety and, and yeah, all of it. Now then, just think to yourself, why is it that Christians are depressed? Why is it that Christians are anxious? Why is it that they feel they are wasting their lives? Why is it that there's so much futility? Why is it that they feel they have no power? Why is it that they can't seem to get out from underneath all the stuff that has always been loaded onto them? Why is that? Because they think they're not good enough, why? Exactly, because you're not measuring up to an imaginary standard. And actually, even below that, fundamentally, you have not truly understood the reality of all that you are in Christ Jesus, all that you have been born into. You have not fully understood freedom. What does it mean to be born free? What does it mean to be brought back into the relationship with God that he intended from the very beginning? What does it mean to know that your life has meaning and purpose and has eternal ramifications? What does it mean to know that you are significant beyond your wildest dreams, that God has a plan for your life that will be worked out, and that when you see him face to face, he will be smiling? What does it mean to really know those things and live in the truth of them? Because we have a church that is so bogged down with all of the wrong stuff, all of the depression and the anxiety and the doubt and the fear and the everything. Jesus said, if you experience my truth, if you experience, know the truth, that truth will set you free. That's why I love the word of God. That's why I teach the Word of God. That's why I want everyone to know the Word of God because knowing the Word of God is knowing truth and knowing truth sets you free. It sets you free. It makes you free. And all of the lies that we are constantly bombarded with from within and without, all of the lies we hear, all of the voices from our past, all of the shame and the guilt and every other thing that is constantly coming at us, 
is cut off by the truth that we are born free. When you came to the Lord Jesus Christ, what happened to you? No, no. You were born again. Which part of you was born again? All of you. Well, actually, technically, yes, all of you, but, but really, your body wasn't really born again because it's still going bad, isn't it? Let's face it. Um, your spirit was born again. You received the Spirit of God right in the center of your being. You were now and will ever be a spiritual being. You are alive spiritually in the center of your being. And then your soul, which is around your spirit, what's happening to your soul? You're being renewed and transformed. And your soul, what does that encompass? What's part of your soul? Your mind and your feelings and your thinking and your heart and your... Um, and your choices, and, and your will, and all of that. That's all being renewed right now. And what about the third part of you? Because we're all spirit, soul, and body. Body, soul, and spirit. What's the outside of you? Your body. What's happening to that? It's decaying. <laughs> it's decaying. Some of us know that much better than others. It is decaying. So, what's going to happen to your body? You're going to get a new one when Christ returns for you. You are going to be this perishable is going to put on imperishable, and this mortal put on immortal. And what's happening to my soul? It's going to be changed and transformed into what? Into his likeness, into the image of Jesus Christ. That's going on every day in every way. I am being transformed. What's happening in my spirit? Hmm? It's done already. I already have the Spirit of Christ in me. My spirit is alive in Christ Jesus. That is a done deal. You, at the center of your being, are already totally done. It's just the soul that is being transformed. Where does Satan attack? Where can he attack? Your mind, which is part of your soul your soul. And what will he want to do, Satan? He can't get to the spirit within you. You have the Holy Spirit in you. And greater is he who is in you than he is in, who is in the world. He wants to make you doubt that you have the spirit in you. And that's what else. So even if you're sure you know you have the Holy Spirit, you know that my, your spirit has been changed. You've been walking with the Lord for a few years. You know that you know that you know that you're not who you were. But the attack will come into your mind and into your feelings and into your emotions. And what will it do? Deceive into doing what? What does, it, what does Satan want to do? Hmm? Yeah, make you doubt God and make you uh, fearful. That something you're doing is not quite right, or something you're thinking, or something you're feeling, or, or it's not happening quick enough. It should be happening quicker, and if I, I should be doing this, this, and this, and making it quicker, and, and maybe I should be kinder to Ruth. I mean, she drives me mad, but maybe I should try to be kinder to her. No, you don't, Ruth. Do you see what I mean? And that's what happens. Satan cannot touch the inside of you. You are completely and utterly born again, and you will never die. He can touch only the 
the mind. He can come in with his thoughts and his doubts and he can make you afraid and he can make you feel so ashamed and so guilty and he can keep bringing back memories of your past, a past that God has forgotten, a past that will, he will keep telling you, but you did this and you did that. Surely you've got to make somehow, you've got to make up for that. That's what he'll do. Mm. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yes. <laughs> yes. It is. It is. It is amazing. Thank you, Janet. Yeah, it is. And that's what really, you know, that's what days like this are about. I mean, I haven't said anything you didn't already know. Have I? I haven't said anything that you didn't know. And you're kind and respectful and, and you're not going to nod off when I speak, hopefully. But the thing is, we have to remind ourselves of these things because we have an enemy and his work is strong and he does not want us to live in freedom. He doesn't. He doesn't want us to be able to stand tall and say, I'm not afraid. I am not afraid. No matter what comes against me, even if it's my past, I am not afraid. I'm not afraid to know that I did this and I did that. That doesn't bother me anymore because I know that is covered by the blood of Jesus. I am not who I was. I am who I'm going to be. I am not a sinner. I am a saint set free by the Son of God. I have been born again. And as Paul writes in Galatians, I was crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We have to remind ourselves of this truth because Satan speaks only lies. And your old man, the one that is fighting inside with the work of the Spirit to transform you, he speaks lies too. 